All right, here we are, part three of the top 10 symptoms of emotionally unhealthy spirituality. And y'all, this last one is probably the best. I feel like the last the last four symptoms that we address, which we cover in today's episode, are so good, so good. You're gonna wanna share this episode. So make sure you listen through, share it with a friend, post it on social media, and tag me if you do, because I wanna see who's listening. And I would love to hear from you which one of these top 10 really spoke to you the most, especially in this episode. I feel like this episode is just so rich. So Share it out on social media, share it with a friend, and let's jump in. Hi, you're listening to Java with Jen with your host, Jenna Lee Samuel. On this show, I bring the simplicity of hearing God's voice into everyday life in a no-nonsense, authentic, and super practical way. With coffee in hand and real life in our faces, let's do this. All right, here we are in part three, the final part to the top 10 symptoms of emotionally unhealthy spirituality. We talked in the last couple weeks about using God to run from God, ignoring anger, sadness, and fear, dying to the wrong things, denying the impact of the past on the present, and dividing life into secular and sacred compartments, and doing for God instead of being with God as the first six symptoms of being unhealthy emotionally and how that creates an unhealthy spirituality. Well, in this episode, we're going to dive into the last four, which is spiritualizing away conflict, covering over brokenness, weakness, and failure, living without limits, aka boundaries, and judging other people's spiritual journeys. So we're going to dive into that right now. Okay, so number six is doing, oh, sorry, number seven is spiritual spiritualizing away conflict. I actually had an experience with this where I've encountered when you try to address issues in a relationship or in a setting, like let's say it's at work or with a, a relationship at church or whatever, and you have someone who tries to spiritualize it saying, oh, well, the devil is just trying to get in our relationship or whatever, and they try to add a spiritual explanation to it. I've just been in a battle for so long. The devil has just been attacking me. And I realized, especially after reading this chapter, that this is a very unhealthy way of handling it. Because when we blame the devil for everything, which not to say he doesn't play a part, but when we blame the devil, it removes our responsibility to take responsibility for the part we play in the conflict and in the disagreement or whatever. And so here's what Peter Scazzaro says in this portion. He says, nobody likes conflict, yet conflict is everywhere. From law courts to workplaces to classrooms, neighborhoods, marriages, parenting our children, close relationships, to when someone has spoken or acted towards you inappropriately. But perhaps one of the most destructive myths that is alive in the Christian community is the belief that smoothing over disagreements or sweeping them under the rug is part of what it means to follow Jesus. For this reason, churches, small groups, ministry teams, whole denominations and communities continue to experience the pain of unresolved conflicts. Very, very few of us come from families in which conflicts were resolved in a mature manner. Most of us simply bury our tensions and move on. He says, when I became a Christian, I also became the great peacemaker. I did anything to keep unity and love flowing in the church as well as in my marriage and family. 
I saw conflict as something that had to be fixed as quickly as possible, like as if it was radioactive waste from a nuclear power plant. If not contained, I feared it might unleash terrible damage. So I did what most Christians do. I lied a lot, both to myself and to others. What do you do when faced with the tensions and mess of disagreements? Some of us may be guilty of one or more of the following. And here's some examples of when you're avoiding conflict. You say one thing to a person's face and then another behind their back. You make promises that you have no intention of keeping. You blame. You attack. You give people the silent treatment. You become sarcastic or passive-aggressive in your comments. You give in because you're afraid of not being liked. You leak your anger by sending an email containing a not-so-subtle criticism. You tell only half the truth because we can't bear to hurt a friend's feelings. We say yes when we mean no. We avoid and withdraw and cut off. Or we find an outside person with whom we can share in order to ease our anxiety. Jesus shows us that healthy Christians do not avoid conflict. His life was filled with it. He was in regular conflict with the religious leaders, the crowds, the disciples, and even his own family. Out of a desire to bring true peace, Jesus disrupted the false peace all around him. He refused to spiritualize conflict avoidance. Now, I had someone come to me recently who needed to confront somebody, and she was actually coming for some wisdom. I'm um, in a position of leadership with her. And I just, I remember she was going to have to address an issue. And I said, you know, there's no way around this except addressing it directly. They may not know what they're doing and how it's affecting you. And if something is being done that's wrong or simply offensive, nothing is resolved by not addressing it. You have to address it. And so, but my final advice to her was do not allow them and do not be tempted to spiritualize the conflict because it was in a a church setting. And so I said, both y'all are believers. Don't allow anyone to spiritualize this conflict. Keep the main issue the main issue. Take responsibility where you need to. And don't be afraid to address where they may need to take responsibility as well. And I said this because what I've experienced as a pastor, having pastored now in three churches, and my husband and I pastored basically our own congregation um, as well. So basically four congregations we've, we've led, aside from leadership experience I've had before. What I have seen across the board one of the most toxic poisons in the church that causes great destruction, great division, and great wounds is when people are unwilling to deal with conflict and when they assume their perspective is the full story and they refuse to be honest and address things. So I find that a healthy person is able to say, hmm, I realize my perspective is limited And I only see what I see, but I don't know that person's intention. I don't know their heart and I could have misunderstood them. So I'm going to go to them and just get clarity. A lot of times people look at um, confrontation as a conflict invitation, but I like to look at confrontation as an investigation or, or getting clarification because the reality is most conflict, literally most conflict comes probably 98% of it from just misunderstanding each other. So then if it's all, if it's mostly misunderstanding, 
then why can't we give the benefit of the doubt and say, you know what, I might have misunderstood their intention. I might have misheard their heart. I didn't know all their thought process behind that. Or I might have just took their tone of voice the wrong way that or different than they intended. And so when you go to somebody and you're honest, and I don't mean you just give them, you have to be honest. <laughs> A healthy person operates in truth. And the truth is you have to, if you mean no, you say no. If you mean yes, you say yes. And if your feelings are hurt, you don't say, I'm fine, I'm fine. You're honest. You say, you know what? Actually, that hurt my feelings. Can we talk about it? A healthy person has to have a level of honesty that allows their relationships to feel like they can trust them and that they know what they're thinking. There's nothing more destructive. In me as a pastor, I would, I would much rather have people around me who are not afraid to have hard conversations and address things and confront things than people around me who are yes men but and are not honest about what they're thinking and what they're feeling. Because those people, you're going to leak what you think and feel. As the man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so whatever's happening in your heart will come out your mouth. But if you're not willing to deal with it with the person it impacts, you're going to end up leaking it to someone else. And that's where it becomes destructive. So healthy spirituality and healthy emotional, uh, like emotional health means that you are able to deal with conflict and you don't spiritualize it away and blame the devil for what you have a responsibility to handle. My last thought on that is Matthew 18 says, if your brother has sinned against you, you have a responsibility to go to him and address, and it says to show him the error of his way. And if he listens and repents, then you have won your brother back. If he doesn't listen, you're supposed to go with someone else, maybe a leader or some kind of accountability to go in and address them again. And if they, if they repent, then you have won your brother. If not, you are to literally cut off the relationship and have nothing to do with them. Now, we give a lot more grace than that usually. We don't usually cut people off after two strikes and you're out. However, there's some wisdom in that, and there's a reason that's in Scripture. Is because when we allow people, we stay in relationship with people who are unwilling to change the way they interact with us to learn to love us better, it puts your heart at risk of holding on to bitterness, resentment, and it becomes divisive. And so the Lord is like, hey, let's protect relationships by actually drawing lines and not participating with people who won't change their unhealthy patterns. Um, but the bottom line of that one is if someone has offended you or sinned against you, you have a responsibility to go to them. I would also add, you have a responsibility to search your heart first and make sure that you're dealing with any kind of, um, heart issues or root beliefs that are your issue and your responsibility. For example, there was, I've shared this before, but there was a gentleman who I was in a group text with, with my husband and his wife. And I had messaged the group. They were working with us in our marriage. And I'd messaged the group, said, hey, when should we connect again? Well, nobody responded to me. But instead, the husband went and messaged my husband privately and said, hey, when should we meet again? Why don't you initiate this? And so no one responded in the group text. But I think he ended up saying in the text, like, Stephen, um, or maybe, I don't remember, somehow they, they organized it and orchestrated it outside and nobody responded to my message. Well, that actually kind of triggered me up and I went to the bathroom and literally cried. And I was like, okay, Jenilee, your cry is not justified for the situation. What's going on? And so my flesh wanted to react and be like, y'all are so rude and blah, 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 and kind of have my peace about it. 
But I realized I have a responsibility to search my heart and figure out where's my pain coming from. And so I asked myself, generally, what lie are you believing that's causing this to be so painful? And I realized I was believing that I don't have a voice, that I'm invisible, I'm voiceless, and my voice doesn't matter because that's how I've experienced life in a number of other environments. And so I realized generally the issue is actually your belief. You believe you don't have a voice. And so that aggravated you when really he was just trying to help teach your husband how to take initiative and deal with issues and like maintain uh, relationship nurturing and stuff. And so I could recognize with my mind, he was actually trying to be very helpful and help my husband. But with my heart, I was offended and that I was offended because of a wrong belief I had. He didn't actually do anything necessarily wrong. And so when you go and address somebody, it's important that if you have a strong emotional reaction to their behavior, that emotional reaction is a sign that you're believing a lie you need to address. Not to say we won't have strong emotions if someone genuinely sins against us, but most times the strong reaction is indicative of a, a lie in our own heart. And so just make sure to do the due diligence. Where is the strong emotion coming from? Am I believing a lie that I don't need to be believing that's making the situation worse? And then once you sort that, so once I sorted the lie that I was believing, I was able to correct it with the truth and say, generally your voice does matter. They have good hearts towards you. No one is trying to cut you out. He's trying to help your husband develop leadership in your marriage. That's it. And so I was able to get peace about it, resolve the pain in my heart, and I never even had to address him about it. And so because I did my own heart care, which is what we call that heart care, taking care of your heart before you address things, then if it ever came up, I could actually do a healthy heart talk where I could share my heart with him and say, hey, this hurt my feelings. Thankfully, it never even needed to come to that because heart care was sufficient. So always do heart care before you go and have a conversation with someone. But when you do address an offense, you need to talk from the heart and from your feel, like not from your anger, but from your vulnerability. Like, hey, when you did this, it hurt me in this way. Can we talk about this? And Or are we okay? So that's Matthew 18. When someone has sinned against you, you go to them. Well, in Matthew 5, it also says, if you know that your brother's offended with you, you are to go to him. The reason why is because no matter whether you've done the offending or you've been offended, you have a responsibility to proactively tend to the relationship. Guess what? The Bible is teaching us how to be emotionally healthy and emotionally responsible. And so even scripture, it is actually spiritual <laughs> to be emotionally healthy. And that we see that right there in that passage. Okay, getting on to number eight. Covering over brokenness, weakness, and failure is emotionally unhealthy. Let's read what Peter says. The pressure to present an image of ourselves as strong and spiritually together hovers over most of us. We feel guilty for not measuring up, for not making the grade. We forget that none of us is perfect and we're all sinners. We forget that David, one of God's most beloved friends, committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband. Talk about a scandal. How many of us would not have erased that from the history books forever, lest the name of God be disgraced? David did not. Instead, he used his absolute power as king to ensure the details of his colossal failure were published in the history books for all future generations. In fact, David wrote a song about his failure to be sung in Israel's worship services and to be published in their worship manual, the Psalms. Hopefully, he asked Bathsheba's permission first. David knew, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, 
A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Psalms 51, 17. Another of God's great men, the Apostle Paul, wrote about God not answering his prayers and about his thorn in the flesh. He thanked God for his brokenness, reminding his readers that Christ's power is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10. How many Christians do you know would do such a thing today? Now, you guys know I tell on myself all the time, so <laughs> at least I'm in good company. The Bible does not spin the flaws and the weaknesses of its heroes. Moses was a murderer. Hosea's wife was a prostitute. Peter rebuked God himself. Noah got drunk. Jonah was a racist. Jacob was a liar. John Mark deserted Paul. Elijah burned out. Jeremiah was depressed and suicidal. Thomas doubted. Moses had a temper. And Timothy had ulcers. <laughs> what a hot mess, right? All these people send the same message. That every human being on earth, regardless of their gifts and strengths, is weak, vulnerable, and dependent on God and others. So covering over your brokenness, weakness, and failure is not a way to be like the men of God of old. For years, I would observe unusually gifted people perform in extraordinary ways, whether in the arts, sports, leadership, politics, you name it. And I would wonder if somehow they'd escaped the brokenness that plagues the rest of us. But now I know they hadn't. We are all deeply flawed and broken. There are no exceptions. And so one symptom of being emotionally unhealthy spiritually is that you pretend you have it all together. And this is part of why I say to you guys, plastic people inspire nobody. Plastic people are not an inspiration. We relate to and identify with people who are flawed humans because we all know we are a flawed human too. And this is part of why I share with you guys my failures and my shortcomings in these podcast episodes. Now, there is wisdom. I don't want you to think it's emotionally healthy to go around blabbing all of your current shortcomings and struggles. There's wisdom and discretion. And a principle I follow is I teach from my past failures because then I can also share how I overcame. But my current struggles, I, I share only with a close group of people who can offer me accountability, wisdom, and pray for me. And so that's kind of the principle. Past failures, I can share freely from. Current struggles, I keep close to heart until I have an overcoming story that can encourage the people around me. So that is what I feel like is a healthy balance of when and how to share. Okay, number nine symptom of emotionally unhealthy spirituality is living without limits. <laughs> Y'all know how I feel about boundaries. Boundaries are life, okay? So here's an example, because a lot of Christians, we live without limits and we think it's godly and that we're laying down our life and we're being a good sacrificial lamb to just push past and keep pushing and do it. We can do it. Just count the cost and take up your cross and, and bear the burden, right? No, it's not healthy. Peter says, I was taught that good Christians constantly give and tend to the needs of others. I wasn't supposed to say no to opportunities to help or to request for help because that would be selfish. You know what, guys? I, side note, I've actually been called selfish and unservant-hearted by leadership that I've had before because I wasn't serving at church to the capacity that they thought I should. But you know what was making my decision about how and when I serve? was my personal awareness of my limits and boundaries I had chosen for myself based on what I had the capacity to do. I was actually being emotionally responsible, but because my leadership that I was dealing with 
was a little bit emotionally fractured and fragmented themselves, they couldn't recognize the health in my boundaries. They actually accused me of being unservant-hearted and selfish. And I had to be able to stand my ground and say, I'm sorry you see it that way, but that's not the truth. I'm actually doing this so I can go the long haul with you guys and can serve with a joyful heart. And so I was actually standing in a healthy space and they couldn't recognize it. So I say that to say, if your leadership has ever done the same thing, you have every right as a healthy human and you have a responsibility to have boundaries. That doesn't mean we walk around with walls and saying no all the time. A healthy believer should be able to give of themselves too. But you need to know where your limits are. And I, I really, I pay attention. I usually get a gut check on the inside. If I'm about to say yes to something and I have this sense of dread or like, Ugh, I don't, eh. and it, it's not just you, I don't want to do that. But it's like this deep gut check. I pay attention to that because that's usually my, my guts telling me, mm, this is past your capacity actually. And maybe it's even my spirit giving me wisdom. Like, mm, that's past what you're able to do. So when I get that gut check, I step back and I ask myself, what could I freely do? What could I offer from an abundant heart? And then I draw lines there. In fact, I had this conversation with one of my sons this week. Um, This last week, he was volunteering at church to help with the summer camp, the summer day camp um, for our children's daycare director. And he came to me because when he'd get home, daddy would give him all kinds of chores. And he was feeling very overwhelmed, like he was constantly working, couldn't enjoy his summer break. And so he's really frustrated. And I talked it through with him and I said, listen, buddy, I said, when you feel that frustration and you feel like everyone is stealing your life from you, I said, that's a good sign that you actually need some boundaries. Like you're actually past your capacity and you need to think about what you can give joyfully and freely and offer what you can happily give. And so I said, maybe that's two days a week instead of five. I said, you need to think about what could I happily give and not be resentful about it. And so he thought about it and he goes, you know what, mom, I could do two or three days a week. And I said, okay, then you need to go and let her know that's what you're willing to offer and that's what you're able to give. And I said, that way you can protect your heart. You can give from a joyful heart and then she can still appreciate the help that you are able to offer. And so, you know, my 13 year old had to learn that lesson. Um, And that's part of my job as a parent, to teach them how to be healthy. (laughs) Okay, moving on. Some Christians, however, are selfish and they believe in God and Jesus, but they live their lives as if God doesn't exist. They don't think or care about loving and serving others outside their family and friends. This is a tragedy. So a healthy Christian should be able to give and serve, but also knows what their limits are. Peter says, I meet many more Christians, however, who carry around guilt for never doing enough. Pete, I spend two hours on the phone listening to him and it still wasn't enough. A friend recently complained to me. It makes me want to run away. This guilt often leads to discouragement. See that where he said it makes me want to run away? That is your inner gut check that a boundary has been crossed. This guilt often leads to discouragement and this discouragement often leads Christians to disengagement and isolation from needy people or needy ministry because they don't know what else to do. The core spiritual issue here relates to our limits and our humanity. We are not God. We cannot serve everyone in need. We are not the Savior. We are only human. When Paul said, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, Philippians 4.13, the context was that of learning to be content in all circumstances. The strength he received from Christ 
was not the strength to change, deny, or defy his circumstances. It was the strength to be content in the midst of them and to surrender to God's loving will from them for him. And in that context, Peter was or Paul was actually saying, whether I have much or whether I have little, I've learned to be content. So it was more about his provision and his experience in life with circumstances he couldn't control. Jesus modeled boundaries for us as a human being. He was fully God and yet fully human, and he did not heal every sick person in Palestine. He did not raise every dead person. He did not feed all the hungry beggars or set up job development centers for the poor of Jerusalem. He didn't do it, and we shouldn't feel that we have to, but somehow we do. Why don't we take appropriate care of ourselves? Why are so many Christians, along with the rest of our culture, frantic, exhausted, overloaded, and hurried? And oftentimes, guys, the lack of boundaries, which leads to the discouragement and the burnout, is what causes people to leave the church. So your spiritual health is tied to your ability to have boundaries and to stand by them, not from a defensive place, but from a place of desiring to give with a joyful heart. Few Christians make the connection between love of self and love of others. Sadly, many believe that taking care of themselves is a sin. To be honest, my husband has preached this. (laughs) And a psychologizing of the gospel taken from our self-centered culture. And I believed that myself for years, he says. It is true that we are called to consider others more important than ourselves in Philippians. We are called to lay down our lives for others in 1 John 3, but remember, you first need a self to lay down. As Parker Palmer says, self-care is never a selfish act. It is simply good stewardship of the only gift I have, the gift I was put on the earth to offer others. Anytime we can listen to true self and give it the care it requires, we do it not only for ourselves, but also for the many others whose lives we touch. Now, this is a point where my husband and I disagree. And I think that's because my husband is still getting some revelation because, of course, I think I'm right. Um, But this guy, of course, reinforces what I'm saying. I do believe that self-care is a very important principle to Christian health because the Bible even says, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as you love yourself. So even in the greatest commandments, there's an indicator that we are meant to love and care for ourselves. Because here's the reality. If you don't care for yourself and you are a limited human, you will burn out. You will become unhealthy. You will become rude and cranky and contentious. And then guess what? Guess who you're not loving very well? The people around you. So caring for yourself, I mean, we see this demonstrated by taking a Sabbath. Taking a Sabbath is a very proactive way to care for ourselves. And there's a reason he says the Sabbath is holy. I believe that our ability to care for ourselves feeds our ability to be holy and to walk in holiness. And so self-care is very important. When my husband preaches against self-care, he preaches it like it's an ideology from our culture. And I'm sorry, babe, I'm totally throwing you under the bus here. Um, And that's his revelation. And I will say to his credit, he's talking about a self-care ideology that's built around a self-centeredness that is all about me. So in that regard, he's totally right. Our Christianity should not be born out of a self-centeredness, but it's actually not self-centered to walk in the truth of the fact that you have limits. 
Walking in truth is part of our mandate as believers. And walking in the truth of who you are and what you're capable of is not ungodly. And caring for yourself, I mean, if we saw someone who was sick and never took themselves to the doctor or they were injured and they never cleaned out their wounds, we would be like, you're unhealthy, literally, but you're acting unhealthy because you're not caring for your body. But yet we let people let their wounds of their souls fester and bleed out and we applaud them like they're noble for just continuing to give. That's not noble. That's stupid, folks. So anyways, that one is about boundaries and your limits. And I will say this, if you need a book or a couple books, actually I have two really good books about learning how to walk in boundaries. Like let's say you're listening to this and you're like, this is my big area of emotional unhealth. I think I have boundary issues. I walk around with lots of frustration in my relationships. That's a symptom of boundary issues. I encourage you to read the book Boundaries by Henry Cloud or the book Good Boundaries and Goodbyes by Lisa Turkhurst. Both of them are wonderful books, almost like like the Boundaries book is kind of like the Bible of Boundaries. It's so good and it's been it's been a top seller for years and years because it's just so healthy. Okay, moving on number 10. The last symptom of unhealthy emotional spirituality is judging other people's spiritual journey. <laughs> this is a big one. Here's what Peter says. The monk said one of the desert fathers must die to his neighbor and never judge him at all in any way, whatever. He continued, if you are occupied with your own faults, you have no time to see those in your neighbor. I was taught that it was my responsibility to correct people in error or in sin and to always counsel people who were mixed up spiritually. I therefore felt guilty if I saw something questionable and did nothing to point it out. But I felt even guiltier when I was supposed to fix someone's problem and had to admit, I don't know how or I don't know what to say. Wasn't I commanded to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in me? 1 Peter 3.15 of course, many of us have no trouble at all dispensing advice or pointing out wrongdoing. We spend so much time at it that we end up self-deceived, thinking we have much to give and therefore little to receive from others. After all, we're the ones who are right, aren't we? This often leads to an inability to receive from ordinary, less mature people than ourselves. We only receive from experts or professionals. This has always been one of the greatest dangers in Christianity. It becomes us versus them. In Jesus' day, there was a superior in the group of Pharisees who obeyed God's commands. And there was the inferior outgroup of sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes. Sadly, we often turn our differences into moral superiority or virtues. I see it all the time. We judge people for their music. We judge them for dressing up or dressing down, for the movies they watch, the cars they buy. We create never-ending groups to subtly categorize people. Those artists and musicians, they're so flaky. These engineers, they're so cerebral, they're cold as a fish. Men are idiots, they're socially infantile. Women are overly sensitive and emotional. The rich are self-indulgent and selfish, or the poor are lazy. Okay, these are ways we categorize people, right? We judge the Presbyterians for being too structured. We judge the Pentecostals for lacking structure. We judge Episcopalians for their candles and their written prayers. We judge Roman Catholics for their view of the Lord's Supper and Orthodox Christians from the Eastern part of the world for their strange culture and love for icons. By failing to let others be themselves before God and move at their own pace, 
we inevitably project onto them our own discomfort with their choice to live life differently than we do. Let me say that again. By failing to let others be themselves before God and move at their own pace, we inevitably project onto them our own discomfort with their choice of life to live differently than we do. We end up eliminating them in our minds, trying to make others like us, abandoning them altogether, or falling into a who cares indifference towards them. In some ways, the silence of unconcern can be more deadly than hate. Like Jesus said, unless I first take the log out of my own eye, knowing I have huge blind spots, I am dangerous. I must see the extensive damage sin has done to every part of who I am, emotion, intellect, body, will, and spirit before I can attempt to remove the speck from the eye of another, Matthew 7. The pathway to unleashing the transformative power of Jesus to heal our spiritual lives is found in the joining of emotional health and contemplative spirituality, which is resting and being still before the Lord. But let me speak to this whole judging others. I actually, last week, probably, I was I encountered a number of conversations, probably six or seven conversations where people were sharing out loud and processing their hurts and thus their judgments about how someone had handled them. Maybe it was a spiritual leader. Maybe it was a neighbor. Maybe it was a spouse. Maybe it was a friend. But all of them, I noticed the pattern was, I'm hurt. This is what they did to hurt me. And then we subsequently tend to judge that person's actions and say, I wouldn't do it that way. If I was in their position, I would do blah, 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 right? What we do when we are hurt is we tend to judge. What we do when we are uncomfortable is we tend to judge. And the reason is because we are naturally critical of what we don't understand. When we are hurt, we don't understand their actions. How could you hurt me? It doesn't, we try to make it make sense, but it doesn't make sense. So then we tend to go into criticism. We become judgmental of their actions and we assign to them all kinds of assumptions we've made about why they did it, what they were thinking, what they intended, and how they're a horrible person. But what I realized in all these conversations, I just kind of observed and listened. The pattern was the same, but I realized that all those people have been the offender to someone else as well, but they would be the first to tell you their intentions were good, they didn't mean to hurt that person, etc. So what I learned from watching all of that was, when we have been hurt, we don't have any right to stand in judgment. What we do have a right to do though, is like, uh, what's the word, investigate, or to go get clarity. Because if you don't investigate and you don't get clarity to make it make sense, right? That's what our mind is trying to do. Then you are going to be holding on to an offense and a judgment. Because really that judgment is our brain trying to fill in the gaps. Trying to make it make sense. Trying to create a pathway to safety. And so because we need a pathway to safety, we, our brains, automatically try to assign Uh, assign judgments and labels to people and people's actions so we would know how to navigate it better the next time. Well, unfortunately, oftentimes our judgments and our labels are inaccurate to what their intentions were, what their heart was, what they were trying to accomplish because we miss context. You never see a whole perspective just when you're looking through your two eyes. You never see a whole situation for what it is until you have been able to talk to everyone involved. That's why in courts, 
the defendant has a right to speak their case. And that's why they ask witnesses. That's why they pull from all that. They're trying to get the whole picture to make an accurate judgment. We actually would be wise to do the same thing and realize I, as the, uh, as the person who's been offended, don't have a right to assume I have all the information. I have a responsibility to go and investigate. And this goes back to that other spiritually unhealthy symptom of avoiding conflict or spiritualizing away conflict. You actually have a responsibility to investigate and explore. And you don't have a right to stand in judgment because nobody knows that person's heart. Nobody knows their thoughts and mind and where their actions were coming from except God. And you are not God and I am not God. So standing in judgment of other people's spirituality or their health is not our place. All we can judge is the action. I was talking Shiloh, my son, through this the other night when he talked about a friend from school who has been kind of toxic with him. And I said, Shiloh, you still have a responsibility to act in love. And he goes, but I don't want to be his best friend. I said, you don't have to be his best friend. I said, love simply sees a need and meets it. So what you, the only thing you can judge, you can't judge his heart. You can't judge his intentions. All you can judge is the action you experienced and say, I don't like that. You can judge that. You can say, I don't like how that made me feel. And you don't have to participate with someone who constantly makes you feel disrespected, mistreated, whatever. But if you are trying to have a relationship with that person or need to want to have peace in your heart with them, you do need to work it out and you need to go talk to them. And if they're unwilling to work it out and they're unwilling to be a good, safe person to have a relationship with, you don't have to have a relationship with them, but you can still treat them with respect If you see that they drop their pen, pick up their pen for them. If you see that they need something, you can offer it to them. But that doesn't mean you have to be their best friend. And so we can judge the behavior. We can't judge the person. In fact, in Matthew 7, where it's talking about taking the plank out of their own eye, the passage right after that, literally in the same segment of Scripture, it's part of the context, is, And do not cast your pearls before swine lest they turn and trample the pearls and tear you to pieces. And the concept there was the, the, the scripture, that passage in Matthew 7 is saying, don't judge others. Take the log out of your own eye. You've got your own issues. But don't cast your pearls before swine. And because if people don't handle you right and handle what's precious to you, you don't have to participate with them is what the rest of the passage is talking about is don't throw what's precious to you to those who won't treat it with preciousness. So you don't need to bother judging their character, but you can make a decision not to participate with them and not to invite them into those precious places if they're not going to handle you well. So the mature, healthy person doesn't stand in judgment of the person that they're offended with. The healthy person, A, goes to try to resolve the conflict. If the resolve can't happen, then you still don't stand in judgment and gossip about them. Instead, you just make a decision. I'm going to have a boundary here, and I don't need to participate in a close relationship with this person. Boundaries are meant to be the lines we draw. You guys have heard this a hundred times. The lines I draw so I can safely love you and safely love me at the same time. There are a couple of people in my life, um, even that because of our roles, I should, by theory, have a, a good relationship with them. But because they've demonstrated a lot of unhealthy behavior and emotionally unhealthy character, I've had to decide, in fact, the Holy Spirit told me, you can't determine how they treat you, but you can decide whether or not you participate with them or not. And so I decided, you know, I'm not going to participate with them because they continue to make me feel unsafe. 
and, and treat me with disrespect. So I drew some lines to remove myself from their environment so that I didn't have to continue to fight against offense and hurt in my heart because when I would try to go address it with them, they didn't have ears to hear. Well, I can't control if they choose to hear me. And so the Bible is clear. If someone's not willing to hear the air of their ways, then you can just put them aside and not have a relationship with them. So an emotionally healthy person, in reflection on all of these, an emotionally healthy person is going to not spiritualize away conflict. They're going to address conflict in a healthy way. They're going to not cover over brokenness, weakness, and failure. They're going to acknowledge it and be honest and transparent about it as appropriate. Remember, we teach from our past failures because there's hope in how we've overcome. And then we share our current struggles with people who are close and safe and can walk with us through it. The, the ninth one was a healthy person is not going to live without limits. They will pay attention to what their limits are and apply appropriate boundaries because taking care of yourself is at the bottom of your ability to love others well. Love others as you love yourself. Taking care of yourself is part of being a healthy individual. And lastly, judging other people's spiritual journey is not how a healthy individual behaves. They will realize they have no right to judge. All you can judge is actions and behaviors that you encounter. And you can say, I don't like that. I don't like how that makes me feel. And you can decide if you need to put up boundaries with someone or not. But you only put up boundaries or choose to remove yourself from a relationship after you have made a couple of attempts to deal with that conflict and restore peace. Because God's priority is that we tend to our relationships. Relationships matter. None of us want our kids to just quit on, on their sibling relationships and just cut each other out of their life. We don't want that. We want our siblings to work things out and protect their relationships and develop healthy relationships, right? Well, God is our father and we are his kids. He doesn't want us to just cut each other out of our lives because we're unwilling to work it out. No, a healthy person realizes the relationship is more valuable than the, the conflict itself. And the relationship is worth working for and fighting for. But a healthy person also recognizes when a relationship is not able to happen because one of the two parties is unwilling to adapt. Adaptation is necessary. A healthy person recognizes it's our job to learn how to love people better. If we can't do that in a relationship or the other person can't do that with us, then a healthy person applies some boundaries and just creates some safe space. Okay, so in reflection on these 10 symptoms of emotionally unhealthy spirituality and how to do life better is one, using God to run from God. We don't do that. A healthy person addresses their deep root issues. Number two, ignoring anger, sadness, and fear. Same thing. We don't ignore the negative emotions we experience in life. We dig into them. Where is this coming from? What am I believing? How can I bring peace to this? What is the truth? Number three, dying to the wrong things. A healthy person dies to ungodly things, but we live to the things God asks of us and is given to us, which is peace, joy, righteousness, safety, health. We die to the right things, which would be things that are sin that would cause death, okay? Uh, four, denying the impact of your past on your present. A healthy person recognizes the things that I grew up around, the way I was conditioned in my environment, traumas I went through, that affects me. And I have a responsibility to get healthy and deal with those things. Number five, dividing life into secular and sacred, meaning 
here's my home life, here's my church life. No, a healthy person recognizes you carry the Holy Spirit with you everywhere you go. God wants to be a part of every part of your life. And I realize that both parts of my life are one in the same. They're all an out, ex, outward expression of who I am and how I operate at church should be how I operate at home. Number six, doing for God instead of being with God. A healthy person recognizes working for God does not replace my relationship with him. Just like paying the bills at home does not replace my husband's responsibility to have a relationship with me and spend time with me, right? Number seven, spiritualizing away conflict. A healthy person does not do this. They address conflict. They do not blame the devil for dysfunction. They take responsibility for their part and they do not allow the other person to try to blame everything either. They address the situation as it is and bring truth into the environment by being honest, loving, and addressing the root issues and the actual issues at hand. Number eight, covering our own brokenness, weakness, and failure. A healthy person does not do this. They're honest with their brokenness, weakness, and failure, and they teach from their past failures as a way to offer hope and encouragement to other people. Number nine, living without limits. A healthy person lives with boundaries. They do not live without limits. They live within the boundaries of what their limits are. We are not God. We are not the Savior. We have a limited capacity to love and and serve and give, and we have to pay attention to what those limits are and love ourselves well in the process. Number 10, judging each other's spiritual journey. A healthy person will not judge others' spiritual journeys because we've got our own spiritual journey to worry about. All you can judge, if you will, is the actions you encounter and whether or not that's something you want to tolerate or not and if you need to address it or not. But you are not God. I am not God. We cannot stand in the place of judging someone's heart or judging someone's intentions, okay? So those are the 10 things. I hope the this series was good for you. If you like, this was just one chapter out of the book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. As you can tell, it's really great material. One of my favorite chapters because 2019 through 2021 was the dark night of my soul. Um, really went through some hard stuff then. And so there's actually a chapter in this book, I think it's four or five, where it talks about the importance that the dark night of the soul plays in our lives and that all of us will experience that at one time or maybe multiple times in our lives. And it gives a real sense of purpose to trauma and hardship that you've maybe experienced. And so I highly recommend this book. It is just such a beautiful, refreshing voice of balance and wisdom in how to cause our emotional health to line up and nurture our spiritual health. So I hope you guys enjoyed this. Share it with a friend. Um, uh, put it out there. Put it on social media. Tag me if you do. I'd love to see who's listening. And if you would, give me some feedback. I'd love to hear which one of these stood out to you. And otherwise, I will see you guys next week. I love you. I actually have a woman coming on the show who has a ministry to single moms. And I'm very excited about that because it's, a, it's an area we've never addressed. But it's a very, very felt need in the world and in our nation, in the church, everywhere. So I'm very excited. So make sure you're subscribed on whatever platform you listen from because you're not going to want to miss that episode because you may not be a single mom, but no doubt you have some friends who are and you're going to want to get that episode in their hands. So make sure you come back next week and I will talk to y'all soon. Love you. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's show. Listen, let's stay connected. Come follow me on Instagram at Java with Jen, where you can follow the latest and say, hey, it's a really great way to stay in touch. 
Many of you have also asked how you can support the show. You can make donations through the Anchor app or on Patreon, or of course, by sharing, rating, and reviewing on social media and iTunes as well. Your heartfelt feedback always reminds me why I do this. Also, don't miss our merch store where you can get super cool Java with Jen swag and coffee. Find it at javawithjenmerch.com. Until next time, remember, hearing God's voice is simple and he wants to be a part of your everyday life. See you next week.